We begin today, session eight of the Leaven of Liturgy. We're actually halfway through the offertory, uh, which I'll remind you in just a moment is not simply the music that's played. Uh, Since we're halfway through the offertory, uh, we'll be hitting the second half, which is the invitation to confession, the confession, and the absolution. But before we do that, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, get this thing hooked up real quick. And, let's see. There we go. So, the offertory continues. The offertory, of course, is not just the music that's being played as the altar is prepared. It could be called the offertory anthem or the offertory uh, music or something like that, but it's, it's been shortened to offertory referring to the music. It's actually a larger part of the liturgy. The offertory... Uh, is the entire action of offering an oblation of bread and wine and alms. Remember that bread and wine used to be the bread and wine that you made at your vineyard from your uh, fields, the bread that came from your grain that you had uh, milled, and, and so it was a real offering of yourself, your soul, and your body. But now bread and wine and alms are what are offered. Uh, we also offer prayers for the state of the whole church, which doesn't mean the entire church, but the healthy church. We pray for the health of the church, the whole church. But we also offer ourselves in our repentance. We're, we've gotten to this portion now, having finished the prayer for the whole state of Christ church at the last session. So, the invitation to confession. In our uh, Books of Common Prayer... Liturgically speaking, we are on page 75 with ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. But people who visit Anglican churches typically have this question on their mind as they visit. Will I be turned away by the priest at the altar rail because I'm not a member or not an Anglican? And so sometimes people who visit stay in their seat because what a scene that would be to go up to the altar rail, to place your hands out, and to receive the answer, no. Which is what will happen in uh, in, in a number of different denominations or or churches. In the Orthodox Church, for for instance, you can't just walk in and receive communion. They will not administer communion to you. It's possible that in a Roman Catholic Church they wouldn't administer communion to you. It's possible. It depends on the priest or the parish. But the question here is, in an Anglican church... Will I be turned away by the priest at the altar rail? Uh, the answer for this comes in the invitation to confession and, uh, and other liturgical uh, elements of the Book of Common Prayer, which you'll see. But the right administration of the sacraments is the priest's responsibility. You will be invited to receive unless you are notoriously evil, which sounds funny, but those are the actual words of the prayer book. If you are a notoriously evil liver and the priest knows it, you very possibly will not receive at the altar rail. That's, uh, if you want to know where that wording comes from, Bishop, uh, Bishop, uh, page 
84 and 85. But we're going to get to 84 and 85 in just a little bit here. The invitation is uh, much more of a, a general invitation than is offered in some other churches. But the invitation does have qualifications. Sometimes they use the, the, the word open communion. Is this open communion? In other words, anybody who walks in the door? It's a hard thing for, just as it is for Anglicans to answer any question. It's always hard to answer because it's a pastoral question, actually. There are qualifications. Here's the first qualification. It's right there. Ye who do truly and earnestly repent to you of your sins. That's a qualification. That's a limitation of the number of people uh, who are uh, about to receive or who are invited to receive. Not ye who are in the room. Not ye who have dressed and gotten yourself to church today. That is not the invitation. The invitation is ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins. And if that eliminates you, then you need to come forward for a blessing. Place your hands over your chest. If you know that you are not truly or earnestly repenting of your sins, you have no intention of changing any of your evil plans, then don't receive communion. It's actually stated right there. It's a qualification. In other words, the following confession is for those who truly and earnestly repent. The priest is to protect the sacrament and the parishioners. Uh, in other words, protect the sacrament from sacrilege and protect the parishioners from their own condemnation. But how can a priest be sure that you have truly and earnestly repented? How am I supposed to know? <laughs> so, uh, that's the next one. How am I supposed to know? Uh, well, there are a couple answers to this question churches have tried. One is mandatory private confession. You must come to private confession. That's how we will know. But those of you who have been raised in churches that have mandatory private confessions are well aware that this requirement can engender resentment, first of all. Secondly, what I've heard more than, uh, more than not is false or incomplete confessions. In other words, my mom made me go to confession and so I'm going to give you a fake confession so that I'll make her happy and sort of, you know, cheat the system or something to that effect. Uh, also, some have been forced to go to confession and have not had much to confess, so they made something up. And I know that for a fact. So, <laughs> so made something up so that they would have something to confess, which completely defeats the whole purpose of confession, completely short circuits the idea of confession and absolution. Uh, and also lack of earnestness. If you are required, you may not be truly and earnestly repenting of your sins. You may be checking the box of confession. Uh, and so that's not great. What's another way? Closed communion members only. That's an attempt, a, a pastoral attempt to protect parishioners. However, it's a far cry from what Christ says to St. Peter when he says, if you love me, feed my sheep. Uh, it does little to ensure earnestness. You may be a member of the church and completely in earnest in your confession. So what does your local membership help? Uh, well, the pastor knows you or something to that effect. And so that helps in some way. But really what it does is it divides the uh, locals from the uh, visitors and that's not really the intent. If you, if you read the New Testament and look at the way that Jesus is welcoming people, there's not really a, a strict members-only kind of mentality here. He typically is visiting with people who you wouldn't expect them to visit to, uh, visit with. 
you could make an argument either way, but it's not a great and perfect silver bullet answer. The Pew Institute uh, did a did a a what do you call that poll uh, study about four years ago in the Roman Catholic Church and found that. 75% of those identifying as Roman Catholic do not believe in the real presence of the sacrament, which uh, a lot of clergy would say that not discerning, as St. Paul says, not discerning the body and blood of Christ is a big problem. Um, in a part of possibly eating and drinking to your own condemnation, the, the number of those who regularly attend was only slightly less, 60-some percent. Um, so you're a member. Okay, congratulations, you're a member. You don't really believe in what's happening here. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a head scratcher. How, how, is the, how is the priest supposed to do this? How is, the, how is the church supposed to do this? Well, the Anglicans look at these problems, and we tend towards putting the ball in your court. Playing tennis. The ball is in your court. I said, ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead a new life. You have to weed yourself out of that one or repent. That's the point. I don't want you to weed yourself out. I want you to turn to the Lord. That's the whole idea. We're, this, is the, this is the closing portion of the offertory. We've offered our tithes and offerings. We've offered this bread and this wine. We've offered our prayers to God on behalf of ourselves and our brothers and the rest of the church and even the departed. And now we are offering ourselves, our own confession, our own repentance. Um, Hopefully you'll just participate. And that is the presumption of most Anglican priests. They're presuming you're participating earnestly. Um, But there's a second qualification, which I jumped ahead to there. You are in love and charity with your neighbors, okay? Sometimes a clergyman can be more aware of the state of relationships between parishioners than he can be aware of the earnestness of your repentance. Uh, But not always, um, because neighbor does not simply mean the person sitting next to you in the pew. Neighbor sometimes means literally neighbor, like your 432 Leeswood Drive and their 430 Leeswood Drive. Are you in love and charity with them, that guy? (laughs) so again only you're going to know that one for sure and if you are a member of the church or if you went to a mandatory private confession I still might not know if you're really in love and charity with your neighbor but you would know hence the ball is in your court but there is a third qualification and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways you can guess Once again, it's difficult for a priest to know your intentions. That's deep down within your will. The deepest part of you is your will. Satan knows all the things that the angels know, and he has better theology than we do, but his will is bent. He is not intending in any way to repent. How do I know your intentions? Oh my goodness, if I, you know. It's in your court. That's that's our answer. It's difficult for a priest to know intentions, but he may look for signs, i.e. a parishioner refuses to follow the doctrine and discipline of the church or refuses to turn from, from or even struggle with sin. Now, when that, when that comes to light, when I have parishioners that refuse to even struggle with or consider or be approached about an open sin, well, now we have a problem. That's when you get the phone call from the priest. <laughs> we need to meet. How are you on Tuesday? Tuesday at 10 o'clock? Okay, well, come meet in my office. We've got to talk. 
Um, but a lot of times there really isn't something open in that way. And so it's once again down to, down to you. How can a church be sure not to turn away those who would receive worthily and likewise keep from feeding recipients unworthily to their own condemnation. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, that it's possible to eat and drink unworthily to your own condemnation. That's supposed to be the pastoral principle behind all of this mandatory confession, members only, uh, closed communion stuff. That's the pastoral principle behind it, supposedly. Uh, or that's the original intention I just don't think that it always actually does that. It, it, it is possible that with these requirements, you may have kept out someone who would have received worthily and passed through someone who's going to receive unworthily just simply because they, they check the boxes. How are we supposed to do this? Well, the Anglican Church presumes worthiness and uses pastoral care to bring people along, encouraging everyone to the actual invitation, draw near with faith, Take this holy sacrament to your comfort. Make your humble confession to Almighty God, devoutly kneeling. That's the invitation. The invitation to confession is important. And you may mumble through it or not, or you may have it memorized or not, or you may take it earnestly or not. But those are actually some qualifications. People say, do you have open communion? It's like, not really. <laughs> there's, there's some requirements initially. Uh, and also, if you're visiting long enough, you're going to get to know your priest and your priest is going to say, would you like to join St. George's or would you like to talk about that? If the answer is absolutely no, well, we're going to have to have another meeting because why are you here then if you're not interested in joining? You're interested in joining, but you don't want to follow any of the doctrine and discipline of the church. Well, that's a problem because the bishop asks you only two questions. Do you believe that this church is part of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And if you don't, why are you here? Second question is, do you promise to follow the doctrine and discipline of this church? The correct answer is yes. If you say no, this is not the church for you. <laughs> the doctrine and discipline of the church is, uh, is something that is the pastor's responsibility, the priest, to bring you along. So... Um, Joining an Anglican church or becoming an Anglican, some people joke, six, takes 10 years. Because it takes you 10 years to have all of your questions answered. But a priest can tell if you're on the right path. If you said, I absolutely will never acquiesce to this doctrine, I'm going to encourage you to go down the street. <laughs> there's like, I don't know how many churches there are in Greenville, but there's a lot. There's like one right there. And, and actually, they have closed communion over there, so you won't be able to go there. But there's one right down the street. They're wide open. Go there. Follow their doctrine and discipline. If you're unwilling to be here, an Anglican priest presumes that you're drawing near with faith, receiving to your comfort, ready and willing. However, ready? Excommunication. It's right there in the prayer book. Ready? This is uh, from page 84 to 85. And this is uh, a very pastoral you, you, can see, you, can, you can see the pastoral nature of the Anglican approach to uh, who shall receive. If among those who come to be partakers of the Holy Communion, the minister shall know any to be an open and notoriously evil liver. There's that word, that phrase. Or to have done any wrong to his neighbors by word or deed, not just that, 
but so that the congregation be thereby offended, he shall advertise him that he presume not to come to the Lord's table until he have openly declared himself to have truly repented and amended his former evil life, that the congregation may be thereby satisfied and that he hath recompensed the parties to whom he hath done wrong, or at least declared himself to be in full purpose to do so as soon as he conveniently may. This comes up sometimes. Uh, a person wanders into an open and notoriously public evil and the priest uh, has to have a conversation and say, is this true of you? Yes, it is. Well, this is going to be a problem at St. George's. Um, are you willing to address this? I am not willing. If you return, you will not. I'm not excommunicating, but if you return, I'm not going to administer the sacrament to you um, until this is addressed. Well, then I will never return. You can call that excommunication. You can call it inviting yourself not to return. You can call it whatever you want. But that's, this is the, if you're wondering, where does Father Paul get this junk? It's from the prayer book. (laughs) It's actually part of the requirement of the priest to do this. So um, if you are a notoriously evil liver, you're in trouble. (laughs) Sorry. But the purpose is not so that you will, you will be banished and everyone will know, oh, this is one of those churches that banishes people. I love this. That's not the point. The point is that, that, uh, that uh, the, the church, the congregation may be satisfied with a repentance and with, you know, uh, somebody, you know, God forbid, steals from the treasury. Not, this, the reason I'm saying this is because it's absurd at our church. Someone disappears with $10,000 and returns, but doesn't return the 10000 and doesn't apologize and has no interest in righting this wrong. That's an open sin that's offensive to the rest of the congregation. This will have to be addressed. Um, so anyhow, that, uh, do we excommunicate people? Sometimes. Not often. But it's there, and there's another one. You ready for the other one? A little more personal. <clears throat> The same order shall the minister use with those who betwixt whom he perceiveth malice and hatred to reign, not suffering them to be partakers of the Lord's table until he know them to be reconciled. That word reconcile is going to come up a lot today. And if one of the parties so at variance be content to forgive from the bottom of his heart all that the other has trespassed against him and to make amends for that wherein he himself hath offended, and the other party will not be persuaded to a godly unity, but remains still in his frowardness or forwardness and malice. The minister in that case ought to admit the penitent person to Holy Communion and not him that is obstinate, provided that every minister so repelling any, as herein specified, shall be obliged to give an account of the same to the ordinary, the bishop, within 14 days after at the farthest. In other words... um, it is not up to the bishop to excommunicate. It is up to the parish priest. And the parish priest simply sends a note to the diocese saying, I've got a problem at St. George's. I've got a problem at St. Swithin's. Uh, this is the problem. This is what I've done. Uh, help me. Pray for me. Uh, <laughs> all of that. So you can imagine and you can know that if your priest is doing right, and there is an unresolved and, what does he call it, malice or malicious hatred reigning between two people in this church, Father Paul is going to get involved in this. We are going to have a meeting. There will be a powwow. 
And there needs to be at least some sign of uh, willingness to return to peace and to be reconciled. Yes, please. Can you interpret the painting there for us? This is the excommunication of King... Oh, I forgot his name, but it was uh, in the... I think it was the 10th or 11th century. This man was excommunicated. It shows the uh, paschal candle extinguished laying on the floor and the clergy departing from him because he would not repent. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's the, the image there. And there's an easy way to be consoled when you're excommunicated. Reconcile. That's it. it. takes 10 minutes. <laughs> we can do it. We can do it this afternoon. Uh, excommunication, the point is not to excommunicate people. The point is to bring people towards reconciliation and communion. That's the idea. Uh, just as a side note, people excommunicate themselves when they get mad at somebody and don't return to church. And I'll not receive a communion. You will not receive. Okay. You know what that's called, right? Excommunication. You have excommunicated yourself despite uh, your best interest and in order to spite someone else. Terrible thing to do. Rather foolish. Uh, if, you, if you think about uh, the manner in which uh, the Lord lays out a straight and narrow path for us, he says, you must receive. St. Paul says, you must not receive unworthily. There's only one, cha- only one choice to receive worthily. That's it. Uh, it's a pretty straight and narrow path. Um, and that's partially why, the, why the, the clergyman is there, why the priest is there. And why his shepherding is important. Um, what about if you're not confirmed? Uh, so we look at the rubric in Book of Common Prayer, page 299. And there shall none be admitted to Holy Communion until such time as he or she be confirmed. Or, and this is leaned on oftentimes, be ready and desirous to be confirmed. People join the church, they're not confirmed yet. They're not really uh, fully in the tradition, but they're ready to rock. Um, the bishop's coming nine months from now. Join now. It's fine. However, if you join and refuse to be confirmed, there's a problem. Because that is the doctrine and discipline of this church. If you refuse to conform to the doctrine and discipline of this church, why are you here? Well, I really like the coffee. I've got a couple of friends here. And, uh, you know, I enjoy potluck dinners uh, third Tuesday of every month. Well, that's not quite good enough. <laughs> Sorry. We're not here for potlucks. That's, uh, that's secondary. Um, and so that's why confirmation. Uh, it, it's possible for people to receive before they're confirmed, but the priest is discerning whether this person is ready or at least desirous to be confirmed. Desirous is leaned on sometimes. If you're visiting, whew, um, this is where uh, clergy, I, you, you, you seek the, the advice of your bishop. Because here's a worthy recipient who's visiting for the week. And the advice is always you communicate that person. When they're returning uh, again, and the more you get to know them, the more you'll get to, to, to uh, lead that person along. The presumption of the priest is most often that those who visit regularly or who join the church are, if not ready, are at least desirous of following the discipline of the church. That includes the sacrament of confirmation. This is a picture of our church in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and a confirmation taking place. Any questions so far about the invitation to confession, 
the question of uh, who gets to receive communion, uh, the limitations laid out by the invitation? Jim. Well, it's very easy with children. It's very easy because what you do is you, uh, they're baptized, they're brought up in the church, they're confirmed, they receive their communion. That's in the Anglican tradition. It's very easy. But in, uh, if we were in an English hamlet in the 17th century, it'd be easy peasy because everybody's Anglican in this town or Roman Catholic. But uh, in the United States of America, People come from all kinds of traditions. And some find it offensive to have to be confirmed because they weren't confirmed in this tradition. That's another theological question. But um, it's, a, it's a pastoral question that is answered pastorally by the bishops of the church. If the bishop came to me and said, we've, we've changed it. We will not communicate people who have not been confirmed. Now, confirmation is a tricky one because the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, and the Anglicans all handle it differently. The Roman Catholics, you receive your first communion when you're seven or eight or something like that, and you're confirmed later. The Orthodox confirm at baptism in infancy and still have uh, a catechetical structure later. The Anglicans use uh, confirmation as basically the turning point from a kid receiving a blessing to a kid receiving communion. When a kid comes in and they've been receiving communion at another church, but they're not confirmed, they're old enough, they're young enough to not understand the theology, they're old enough to understand being excommunicated, that's where the priest is in a bind. Because there's a little soul here. And this little soul has been uh, welcomed in. How can you tell this little one, now we're going to excommunicate you, Oh, you can't do it. You basically have to bring that kid along as fast as possible and the bishop comes, you get him confirmed and you say, Lord, have mercy upon us and that's what you do. Um, there's, that, that's basically the answer. Uh, the New Testament does not lay out a structure for us about this. That's why each church handles it differently, historically differently. But yes, there was a time, sorry, your original question, there was a time when you would not receive communion until you were confirmed. That would be the very uh, earliest portion of the early church. Yeah. Um, in fact, we would, halfway through the service, ask half the congregation to leave because they had not been baptized or confirmed. They would physically leave the building for the communion service. They would be there for the scriptures, the reading of the word, the sermon, and all that, and then they would leave. The confession. You all know this, so... I could read it. I will. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent. That was the requirement. Earnestly repent. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. You may come to church and say, I don't know, it's not that intolerable. I mean, I was tolerating it all week long until this morning. I'm tolerating it pretty well right now. <laughs> well, uh, 
it, this reminds me also of the confession and morning prayer. Miserable offenders. Okay, you may not be in misery. This is an objective statement about the reality of your state. Okay, God knows the miserableness of your state, even if you're unaware of it. God knows the sin that you're pretending that you're bearing real well. You're not bearing it as well as you think you are. It is unbearable to you. you you're fooling yourself a little bit when you say this is bearable or this is tolerable. I tolerate this fairly well. It actually is intolerable by, by the fact that, uh, that the, the wages of sin is death and you don't tolerate that so hot. Um, it is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past. Grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life. That covers past and future, which is a lot. We'll hear about that in the sermon today. To the honor and glory of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And the absolution, you realize, is not a... Uh, a declaration or, or a priest reading a Bible verse. The priest is doing this. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you. It's the priest. The Lord has uh, promised this. The priest is applying it. Have mercy upon you. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness. Bring you to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Confession. Absolution. The general confession and absolution. Okay. And some would say, and this is a constant statement about those who encounter the priesthood from a more Protestant uh, tradition. I don't need a priest. I don't need uh, that priestly ministry. Okay. Yes. Correct. God can forgive you without a priest's absolution. You can also get to downtown Greenville without a car. But if God gives you a car, if God gives you a bus, why don't you just get on the bus? He gave you the bus. It's a means of grace. The priest in apostolic succession is no more an obstacle between you and God than a vehicle is an obstacle to your destination. Sacramental priests are provided by God as a means of grace. He's given you all kinds of means. Uh, do you promise to follow the doctrine and discipline of this church? Yes. Well, one of the, the doctrines and disciplines of this church is that you attend Holy Eucharist and you, re- and you make your confession and receive uh, absolution. Yes, you can go hunting on Sunday mornings and you can meet God in the tree stand and wait for that deer to come by and shoot it and say, the Lord has blessed me, forgive me all my sins. Uh, God can do whatever he wants to do. Of course, he'll forgive you of your sin. However... He actually actually provided for you a means. And you say, well, I don't need that means. I don't need anything coming between me and the Lord. It's just me and Jesus. There's an old uh, bluegrass song. Me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Okay? Uh, Yeah, you do have a good thing worked out, which is he provided you the church. (laughs) He provided you the minister. It's a ministry of reconciliation. St. Paul, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is talking to a group of Corinthians that he's very frustrated with because they have lost their interest in his apostolic ministry and have decided to look elsewhere. And he says, okay, guys, all things are of God who hath reconciled. Listen to this word, reconcile. 
who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Got it? We're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's our ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. It's been delegated to his disciples. The first thing he says when he appears uh, to them in John chapter 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. How many times does the word reconciliation come up there? And how many times does St. Paul say this ministry has been delegated to those in apostolic authority? Those who have been given this ministry are now trying to also reconcile you to God because we're doing it in Christ's Stead. We've got a little bit of time left. Then there's a little bit more heavy things to cover. But uh, any any thoughts about that? Um, I know uh, before I learned what the priesthood was, I would have said the exact same thing. I don't I don't need a priest coming between me and my Jesus until you realize that Jesus provided you the priests. Well, who are you arguing with now? <laughs> who, who, who is my argument with now? Uh, yes, you can get to Greenville without a car. You can walk all the way there. It'll take you a while. Um, and that, that's maybe a poor illustration, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. He's given you something. Why are we not making use of that? Why would someone refuse? But the valid- Okay, this is a separate issue. This is called a general confession, right? Uh, The validity of absolution in the liturgy keeps many away from private confession. Arguments for private confession often begin by striking at the general confession. So uh, the Roman Catholic Church and many in the the Anglican Church uh, insist on people going to private confession. And sometimes when they're uh, speaking of this uh, apologetic for private confession, they strike out against the general confession, say there's a problem with it. In other words, they say things like this. This is not a corporate confession of sin. It is a confession of corporate sin. And that's what it means. In other words, we're confessing the sins of our nation. We're confessing the sins of our church as a whole. But these aren't specific sins. And so this, you need to go to private confession. And the answer is, it's actually not true. Corporate sin is not the intention. You can read it in the rest of the liturgy. You can read it in the absolution. Um, There can be no general absolution because there are no general sins. You ever heard that one? Uh, All sin is specific, and so you need to go to private confession to confess your specific sins because there's no general sins. Okay, that, that is an equivocation on the word general by general, we're not meaning uh, national sins. We're meaning we're generally all confessing together now. We're all confessing together, generally. Um, but if God gives you a car, <laughs> why would you not use it, right? Uh, Book of Common Prayer, page 88. Because it's requisite that no man should come to Holy Communion, but with a full trust in God's mercy and with a quiet conscience... Therefore, if there be any of you who by this means cannot quiet his own conscience herein, but requireth further comfort or counsel, let him come to me, says the priest, or to some other minister. It doesn't have to be me. 
minister of God's word, and open his grief, that he may receive such godly counsel and advice and may tend to the quieting of his conscience and the removing of all scruple and doubtfulness. The invitation is present in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer for you to make a private confession. It's much more explicit in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Um, And so let's talk about that private or what's called auricular confession, which means in the ear. A private auricular confession. A conscience may be well-formed or scrupulous or lax. All of those forms of uh, conscience would benefit from an auricular confession. Why? Well, a lax conscience would have to be forced to go to private confession. Why would I? I never do anything wrong. That's a lax lax conscience. If he had even the slightest inkling of going to private confession, he would receive counsel. And when he sat there and said, I don't have anything to confess. I haven't done anything wrong in a long time. uh, The priest would be able to say, I'm not sure you've got that actually correct. And uh, he would receive advice and counsel and perhaps come closer to the truth in his spiritual life and realize he'd been a little bit playing a game with himself for the last several years to his own soul's detriment. A lax conscience, though, would probably not go to private confession of their own volition. If they did, they might benefit from it quite a bit. A scrupulous conscience might be there every day. I knew I shouldn't have eaten that cookie. Uh, you know, I, I took a shower. I swore to myself I would take a five-minute shower, and it was seven minutes. I wasted all that water. I got to go to confession. Um, so you go to confession, and you say, it was a seven-minute shower again, Father, and the, and the priest is able to help you with your scrupulous conscience and say, that's not a sin, actually. You are burdened and beating yourself up over something that is not a sin. You're playing a game with yourself, and you're stuck in a, in a spiritual eddy along the side of the stream, spinning around in circles, uh, beating yourself up about having showers that are too long, or something to that effect. A scrupulous conscience would also benefit from a half-decent uh, private confession. But a well-formed conscience would hope for comfort, accountability, and advice. And that is a benefit. Now, you don't receive those in the general confession and the general absolution. Because I didn't sit and listen to you, or some priest didn't sit and listen to you, and find out, discern through questions and through listening, that you're playing a little bit of a game with yourself on that one. And on this one, you've actually beat yourself up a little bit too much. A trained priest would be able to hear the confession and help you. Advice, etc. Um, especially if your conscience cannot be quieted. I can't forgive myself and I can't believe that God would forgive me for what I've done. Good for you to go to a private confession then and talk to a priest about that. Um, because something's not right um, in your spiritual life and you need some help. So there is a benefit towards uh, to, to private confession, even though uh, our little rule, which is all may, none must, some should, which is the Anglican version, uh, usually turns into something more like all may, others do, I'll never, <laughs> something to that effect. I will never, never, never 
sit down with a priest and confess my sins because those are my sins. You just, just keep talking to yourself about why you would never tell someone about your sins and you'll, you'll find the weakness in the argument. I'm so ashamed of this that I, ooh, I'm so ashamed of this that I wish to perpetually live in shame. Ooh, that's not so good. Um, I don't want anything to come between me and Jesus. Ooh, nothing between me and Jesus except for that Jesus gave us the priesthood. Okay, um, I really don't have anything to confess. Ooh, that didn't sound good either. I don't have anything to confess. Um, you know, I'm just saying, uh, the reasons aren't, aren't great. I've provided many of those reasons myself in the past, so that's why I know them so well. <laughs> so we're at the end here, the offertory. The offertory itself, we offer our alms, our oblations, our confession, ourselves, our souls, our bodies, and we receive... For alms, blessing for their use. They're blessed at the altar. Turn to the church for good use. For our oblations, we receive consecration. This bread and this wine are offered. They're consecrated and returned to you, the body and blood of Christ. For our confession, we receive absolution. In the end, this oblation is kind of a, a boomerang. It's going out, and it's coming right back better than it, came, than it went out. And for ourselves, we offer ourselves, our souls, and our bodies, and we receive salvation for ourselves, our souls, and our bodies, too. The offertory being complete, the liturgy turns on towards uh, the comfortable words, or comfies, as some priests call them, the comfies. Hear what comfortable words our Savior Christ said to me, all those who truly confess their sins. yeah, the comfies, just get these over with real quick. Come unto me, all ye that travel and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. So God loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here also what St. Paul saith, this is a true saying, worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not condemn them. Here also what St. John saith, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Those are the comfies, the comfortable words. And once you have offered yourself, your soul, your body, your alms, your oblations, your penance, your or penitence, and you've received absolution and comfort, we turn to the altar and the consecration begins because you're about to be fed. It's pretty great. <laughs> the rationale of the liturgy, the leaven of the liturgy is working into you, Lord willing, that over and over again when you follow this pattern, you realize the nature of salvation. This liturgy is working its way into you like leaven into a lump of dough so that the leaven of liturgy has its uh, full effect. That is the intention, uh, and that is the end of the offertory. We'll begin next with the uh, Sursum Corda and uh, the Sanctus, and that will be next week. No questions. No time. Oh, wait, we have a question. Oh, no. I have a question. That deserves a much longer answer. I'm not avoiding it, but if I start it, I'll never 
there's, there are great answers to that question. Um, if I had to answer real quick, I would say uh, because the Lord, when he instituted, well, no, the better answer is because the second person of the Trinity was incarnate as male. His priests stand as altar Christus, as other Christs, and they stand in persona Christi, in the person of Christ at the altar. Christ's ministry is the ministry of the priesthood, and the priest's ministry is the ministry of Christ. That's why a priest doesn't come between you and God. Christ is giving himself to you in this priestly ministry. The, there's, there's so much more to say about that, um, but that's, that would be the, the quick answer. Also, you could say that the tradition of the church has assumed this from the apostolic area through sub-apostolic, through patristic, through the Reformation, all the way up until the 1960s when the world was being just basically turned over and upside down. Uh, and then uh, came women's ordination. I wasn't expecting a women's ordination question today, but I will have time for it in, in, in time to come. That's all. God bless. Bye-bye.